Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. I'm your host, Paul Metza. We have an incredible guest tonight. Diamond Dave Whitaker was one of the original visionary beatniks who paved the way for others in Dinkytown, the Bohemian Enclave just north of the University of Minnesota campus. He is mentioned in every Bob Dylan biography ever written as he was the man who turned a young Robert Zimmerman on to Woody Guthrie, and we all know how that worked out. But besides, Dylan Diamond Dave has seen a lot of things in his time, and we reached him by phone a couple months ago from San Francisco, just days before his 80th birthday. Minneapolis, San Francisco, full circle, are you there? Yes, I am, David. Great to have you. We have the legendary Diamond Dave Whitaker on the phone with us just a few days before his 80th birthday. 80. Wow. Day, uh... Diamond Dave is in every Bob Dylan book ever written. He well, was, yeah, that's not probably. I mean, Sam, you're right. Well, you are there in Dickytown at the right time. All the ones I have, but we'll just tell people what uh, you're known for there, and then we're going to talk about your incredible life above and beyond Bob Dylan. Oh, my goodness. Go back. It is way above it. Go, go, go for it. Okay. Go so, Diamond Dave Whitaker, you were the man that is credited with turning Bob Dylan, or Robert Zimmerman at the time, onto Woody Guthrie. How did that happen? Oh, you said it right off. Well, my, let's, let me take you folks back to Dinky Town, 1961, a long time ago. Uh, I went to University High School let me go, on the campus, now called Peak Hall, and then stayed there in Dinky Town. And my place in Dinky Town became a, uh, a place for people to hang out, to the music, to... Uh, to talk radical politics, it was a, just the beginning of what they called out the, the, the new left, and it also spoke the good herb, marijuana, 1961. And so uh, he, he was already Bob Dylan, I think, although not too many. And a woman named uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Jahanra, ran into him on the street. He looked very sad. He didn't know what to do. He was coming down from uh, Hibbing, Minnesota, where the wind hits heavy on the borderline. He didn't know anybody. He knew he had something to bring, but he didn't know where to bring it to. And she said, come with me and brought him to my house where music was being played, marijuana was being smoked, and radical politics, 1961, was being discussed. Wow. Now tell people uh, what where Dinky Town was. It was right on the uh, cusp of the University of Minnesota. Yes. And so there it was... was uh, the, 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 go ahead, David. The, they were building the... They were building, or was about to build the West Bank campus. It didn't exist in those days. Okay. West Bank, in my mind's eye, was called Seven Corners. It was a place where native people, you could suppose, hear a bunch of Ojibwe being spoken. Well, I'm a Ojibwe and, uh, and poor white people, and, uh, it was called, it was called Seven Corners. And, uh, the West Bank went up there. It was kind of an embarrassment, I think, to the city fathers. What was, David, what was the bar? The Mixers, that was on Seven mixers. Corners, correct? There was the Holland Bar, where, where we hung out. I lived right over, we lived right over, over there, but that was before that. But the Mixers was the place where we mixed it up. And who was the famous poet who taught at the U of M? He ended up uh, taking a dive off the Washington Avenue Bridge. Oh, that's John Berryman. Did you know John at all? I did. Okay. What can you tell us about him? Well, he was, he had he come... He had a serious, uh, like many poets, he he, uh, he uh, struggled with a drinking problem. I want to say, I have 17 years. I'm, that's why I'm still here talking to you. Serious drinking problem. He married a young wife. I remember it was young in those days. And it was just too much for him. And one uh, uh, one day he was walking across the bridge, East Bank, West Bank. And uh, people were walking by. It was covered then. I think it was covered. But anyway, people saw him walk to the side of the bridge. It was... I, it was uh, it was a winner, so it was. Uh, uh, and he waved to people, climbed over the uh, climbed over, climb over the barricade, and that was the end of John Barrett. Wow! Now, David, where did you uh, get into uh, you know your 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 politics and your your world view? How did that start? How did that start? Why well, can't say my mother was a socialist. My father was an artist, went along with him. My mother's Jewish, north of Minneapolis, and they were the, and she was a socialist, 
and democratic socialists like like Bernie, long before Bernie, uh, were saying that anyway. Uh, and so I kind of came with it, came with it, and I grew up in the in the bosom of the Unitarians. So hmm. and uh, w- which was definitely uh, during those fifties, the period in which things were shut down, McCarthy period, uh, the. the, the the, the theory sent out Lutherans, very reactionary, fundamentalists, and so on. There was, uh, the, um, there, there was, uh, the Unitarians was a place to be, to develop, uh, and it came out of that. And then there in Dinkytown, I began to connect with, uh, graduate students who had come to get their degrees at the University of Minnesota in American Studies from New York, Jewish, by many cases, Jewish, the places like NYU and Columbia. They came to get their, it was, it was a, uh, study that just began at many, many uh, U of M uh, began, it was called American Studies, Literature, Politics, uh, Literature, Politics, uh, History, and that attracted people who had a natural, natural interest in an alternative way of thinking. You were born in 1937, so, you know, you went through your, you know, a kid during the Second World War. In the late forties, early fifties, what was the fifties really like? They call it the button-down decade, but you would know. I would know because I was there. I'm I'm class of 1955. Okay, University High School, now called Peak Hall. Uh, that's where I first began to immerse myself in Dickey Town because it's right over the bridge. Same year I was born, 1955. Exactly. We just moved over to the campus. We had an old, old building right on the riverbank, a block or so in. And anyway, it was buttoned down, although not, uh, I guess it was the MacArthur period. The FBI was around. People were kind of fearful. But because of my background, because of who I was, because I was naturally independent and other, I, I, I went for it, so to speak. What tell us about the folk music scene in Dinkytown at the time? The scholar, of course, was probably the premier folk club in the Twin Cities. True. Well, this be, I think it's at the same time as the scholar. There's another one on the other side of the campus. But anyway, the, but the folk scene was again in that very living room I'm talking about, and there was little son Tony Glover, Snaker Dave Ray, and Spider Spider John Kerner. Have you heard of them? <laughs> The trinity of uh, of uh, uh, the Minnesota folk scene, those three. Well, so again, uh, they, they were teenagers then. We were all kind of late teens uh, then. Did you see... I was talking to your your friend David Morton, who, who we will talk about a little later in our conversation. Did you see Lead Belly when he played at Northrop Auditorium? No. Okay. That was earlier. I don't know when that was. What kind? What type of folk singers were coming in through town? Not the Minneapolis-St. Paul guys, but uh, the ones from the East and West Coast. Do you remember that? I'm uh, the one who just comes to mind now, and the guy who kind of brought it was a guy named Ralph Kahn. Mm-hmm, I've heard of him, and he brought that spirit. The, 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 a little, and he was uh, between generations. But, oh, I remember Pete Seeger came through, and yeah, this is when he was blacklisted. And says that University of Minnesota at uh, in the uh, in the student union. I remember seeing Pete, and that's pretty much what I remember right now. What? But what, what, what we had, but kind of beyond that, this is with folk, uh, Folkways Records. That's what he got through, and uh, sure. Lead Belly, and also uh, the blues. People were really beginning. Uh, people, some people were really in the, uh, the blues. Uh, it was, uh, the blues. And those are the records that played on our and the machine. Tell us a little bit about what a, what a party would be like at your place uh, in the late fifties, early sixties on a Friday night after uh, the scholars shut down. Well, it's pretty nice. But any time, I can't remember. I guess it was said party time and regular time it was a place people would come. They knew they could come hang out. They knew music was going to be played. They knew that power, that uh, interesting subjects would be discussed. I had books. I, uh, let's go back to Bob. Uh, he was there hanging out and I heard him uh, when he first came a couple of, he moved, kind of moved on my couch. Mm-hmm. And, I'm listening, and I said, you got to read this, Bob. And I uh, reached into my bookshelf and pulled out a copy of Woody Guthrie's Bound for Glory. What year was that, uh, David? What year was that? It was 61. Okay. Something like that. 61, I guess. Mm-hmm. He was 18. Do the math. 
did he the the story I heard then was uh, he crashed on your couch and when you woke up he was uh, still reading the book probably finishing it there from a night of reading is that correct it was and uh, I got up and went to make coffee like I did every morning when people were around a guy named Alan Klein owned the house he lived downstairs he'd come up and we'd have coffee and that's how we start our morning so to uh, differentiate and party and not party I don't think you do that but anyway, he got his guitar in his, on his lap like he always did. Hmm. And I came in, Bob. And he said, uh, and so I walked, walked to the bed and he said, listen to this. And he sang his first Woody Guthrie song. And that was, uh, that was Tom Joad. Hmm. What he said, uh, uh, for, for people who couldn't read the book, Greg Savath, and couldn't afford the movie. Wow. So the whole story of, uh, John Steinbeck. And I believe John Steinbeck said when he heard the song, he cursed out what he got through. He said, I, it took me 200 pages to write what you said in 12 or 14 verses. Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a uh, Well, whatever. Well, it's what I've heard, you know. Hey, it's the well, folk process. A lot of things. I'll believe it. Why not believe it? But it's true. It's verses. And it's a story, the whole story of Grapes of Wrath, Preacher Casey and all that. The whole, uh, we're all one big soul. It is the whole story, but it wouldn't have been done without the book and the movie. Tom Joad got out of the old McAllister pen. There he got his parole. After four long years on a man-killing charge, Tom Joad come walking down the road. Poor boy, Tom Joad come walking down. Hello, humans. This is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 on Monday mornings at 7.30. This Monday, I'll talk about a contemporary icon in reigning in hate groups, Morris Dees, who co-founded the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's taken on the Klan and skinheads and won. You'll also learn that Minnesota is home to several hate groups. That's not good news at all. I've got a vision of a better world where everyone has a place at the table. Ellie 2.0, engaging in real on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Enjoy a delicious home-cooked breakfast or lunch away from the kitchen at Milda's Cafe, now open seven days a week. Milda's Cafe has been cooking up family favorites since 1964. Grab a coffee and sit down for a delicious Philly scramble, house-made rolls, or Denver omelet. Stop in for lunch where you'll find authentic Finnish pasties every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Open weekdays 6 to 3, weekends 8 to 2. Milda's Cafe on Glenwood Avenue, four blocks east of Penn. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. As a family-owned business, Standard Heating and Air Conditioning has been serving the Twin Cities since 1930. A new furnace and air conditioner from Standard Heating and Air can lower your monthly utility bills, administer more consistent temperatures, and even improve indoor air quality, making your home safer and healthier for the whole family. The average heating and cooling system lasts 15 to 20 years, so if yours is on its last legs, call Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. Learn more at standardheatingdeals.com. The two gingers just can't get enough of Paul Metza. He's smooth, yet strong, a great mixer and very refreshing. The two gingers are his biggest fans. They're at practically every bar, club and restaurant in Minnesota to see his shows. And now they've taken to following Paul around the country. Texas, New York, Nebraska. You never know where you may find the two gingers. Just ask the bartender for them. Two gingers whiskey. What could happen? This is Bill McLeslie, owner of IP House in Minneapolis. Many businesses don't know their cloud server is unsupported until they actually need support. It takes only one bad experience in dealing with the big-name providers to see why I started IP House. We provide support no matter which cloud you're on, theirs or ours. Our staff is located right here in the Twin Cities and is on call 24 hours a day. And if you don't want the cloud, we can help you there too. Call us, 612-337-6337. 
There was another uh, gentleman who's a mutual friend of ours who in the Robert Shelton Bob Dylan biography, No Direction Home, says when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And we're talking about the effect that uh, our friend Dave Morton had on a young Bob Dylan. Well, that sounds like that comes from India. I'm, I'm kind of, but we were all pretty well who we were. I don't think, uh, I'm not looking back at the future. People were showing up. People were connecting one another. Uh, Morton was there for sure. Hugh Brown was there for sure. Harvey Abrams, others were there. But who had that effect, I hesitate to say. Right. We, we'd come together. The times were right. What did you? What do you remember about David Morton back in the day? Well, I knew Morton. We went to school together. He was the last year before, University High School. Yeah, okay. And uh, we were both in the Unitarian Youth Sunday night. It's called... Uh, the Channing Club, after William Ellery Channing, hmm. the, the famous Unitarian. Interesting. We went there together. So before all that, so, so Morton and I kind of grew up together in that way. Wow. You know, my grandmother was a Unitarian, so I'm very familiar with the uh, with that uh, religion. Okay, hold on a second. Let me buy this cigarette. Yeah. Unitarians were definitely an oasis in the, uh, in the 50s. Well, they've been an oasis for quite a bit, but... I'm talking about the 50s, mm-hmm. when things were really upside down with the Lutherans. Not just the Lutherans, the Lutheran, um, the Missouri Synod, the most reactionary of the Lutherans. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, they were kind of running the show. We had uh, there, but the Unitarians uh, up there on Mount Curve Avenue, right there in over Loring Park, that's, uh, that's where I met a lot of people, and there's definitely a segue with, uh, with the Unitarians and Dickey Town. And uh, like that, and I and believe that uni- that that Unitarian Church is still there. I've been there for a couple of events, right yeah, behind the old uh, Walker and the Guthrie. Correct. That's it. Yeah. And I went by there for a reason nostalgia because I wanted to see when I came through. Uh, this is the last time uh, after the Rainbow Gathering, and I came through, and of course I want to go. And I went up there. And, uh, here, uh, you know, and to just compare who I am now, kind of, and it's a lot of old, old, older, old people, and, uh, they have that's why I realized Minnesota is a different style. Right. Nobody came to me and said that I, because I got up at the thing and said I'd been here, blah, 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 and I used to be here, and I grew up here, and now I'm so on. And, uh, then I stood back after the thing and expected people to come up and say, uh, say something. But nobody did. It was, uh, it's, I think, in Minnesota, I guess, was people don't talk to one another hmm. the way that I'm used to. David, it's now you job. went out to... The 50s, uh, and it's very room. And so I was a bit uh, disappointed, but looking back at now, that's the way things are. David, you... Different places have different styles. Right. Now, you've lived in San Francisco for how long? I got here in 1957, huh? And you rubbed shoulders with a lot of pretty cool cats when you first got to San Francisco, correct? With the beatniks. Yeah. So tell us about Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy, well, Lawrence. You know, let me let, let me finish my. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I came out here. I read the article Nation magazine. In fact, it was there in the library of, of University High School. They had Nation, and a lady and a guy named Kenneth Rexroth. I don't know. Yeah. He was a literary critic. And I, anyway, an article that something was happening in San Francisco. And it was before the term beat was even coined. But they mentioned Ginsburg and Kerouac and all these poets. And I said, I'm there to myself. And I got, and, uh, soon it was just a three lane highway, remember. It was, there's no interstate then. You just put your thumb out and soon I was here standing in front of the State Lights bookstore. That was, that was 1957. And soon there I was, bike messenger by day, beatnik by day and night. It was 1957. So tell us. Wow, I bet you were. So who did, uh, what was it like? What was Jack Kerouac like? What was Jack Kerouac like? Well, he's very quiet. He was, uh, they call him Memory Babe because he wrote everything down. It just changed the names. That's on the road and so on. And I not only know him, I knew the, a lot of the people who were in his book, like Neil Kowski, Dean Moriarty in his book. Right. And stuff like that. But he, uh, he was quiet until he was drinking. And then he, uh, well, was, anyway, uh, what was he like? Well, it's, uh, he was a Jack Kerouac. I mean, he, on the road hadn't come out yet. I think it was there when it did come out. So, did you say uh, Memory uh, Babe? Was that the name? 
Memory, B-A-B-E? This is a, bi- it's a biography of Kerouac. Wow. By Jerry Nicosia. It's called Memory Babe. Okay. Like, he claims that they called him back in the day. Because hmm. it was, uh, I never heard that. But I know the book you made by Jerry Nicosia, Memory Babe. And he claims that's what they called him back then. I never heard that. And I was... I was around him, around that all the, every, all the time. What about... But he yeah. definitely, I mean, he could write this stuff. He could just type it out, human typewriter, and he just changed the names. Hmm. Like Neil Cassidy became Dean Moriarty. What do you, what, uh, did you have a chance to hang out with Neil Cassidy? Yeah, he was there. He'd come through. The two of them were working at the, uh, um, were working on the railways. So that, and they'd come up on the weekends. Hmm. In their uh, in their uh, conductor conductors in their co- in their outfits in their uniform kind of that's what I'm, and uh, Neil would have a uh, a kilo of marijuana in a shopping bag <laughs> and people would come up and uh, and he'd give them a ten dollar bill and he'd pull a couple of handfuls out it was really cheap in those days remember it was only ten dollars an ounce right eighty dollars a kilo that's two point two pounds how was it was it what how does it uh, compare with the power of the marijuana today was it good. Oh, nothing. It was good enough. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it didn't get in the way. It didn't get in the way of what you did. It was all Mexican, right? In right. fact, I think the term "wetback" comes from the fact that I used to swim it across the Rio Grande in a in a, in a pack in a backpack full really? of kilos, hmm. full of kilos. Wow! And they'd swim it across. There's no. This is before in the fifties. Quite a bit long before the Humboldt County. Uh, Humboldt County, Mendocino, grow your own uh, marijuana industry started. Took over. What uh, can you tell us about Allen Ginsberg? Because he, in 1955, I believe, he debuted Howl at Gallery 6. That's right. Were you there? I didn't meet him until later. I didn't, wasn't there until later. Okay. But I'd see him on the, uh, I would stop and tell on the streets or between, on Grand Avenue, between the players of the place. And Vesuvio's down the street, and the bagel shop with three places where people hung out, and I, and he'd uh, and and so you'd see him uh, there in between, and then uh, we had Kerouac and the Casty coming up from uh, Los Altos where they lived hmm. on the weekends. So that was the crew, and many of the others too. But that was like the crew. Yeah, Greg Corso, let's talk about him. He actually died in a suburb of Minneapolis uh, right. 10 years he ago or so. Yeah. Uh, he was a New York guy. Yeah. He was a New York to the bone. Who's your favorite poet of the bunch? Or do you like I them all? I don't have a favorite. I, mean, they're all got, I was amazed when I first read Howell, but I don't want to talk about favorites. Uh, many poets who touched me. Uh, some of them, there's a big bunch. Bunches of bunches of bunches. Tell, like, tell us some we should... David, tell us Phil some Levine. that we should know about. Well, he's the one who just came to mind. Phil Levine. Philip Levine. Okay. There you go. He was out of the, out of uh, Detroit. Out of several of Detroit, I said. Check him out for yourself. Google him. More with Diamond Dave Whitaker on the Wall of Power Radio Hour after these messages. One source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities gay scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com.
Saturday to 1 p.m., you have a chance at a fresh start, a new beginning. Hi, everybody. This is Freddie Bell, host of New Beginnings. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, spirituality, and even entertainment. Every day is a chance for a fresh start. Join us Saturday at 1 p.m. for New Beginnings with Freddie Bell on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. The two gingers just can't get enough of Paul Metza. He's smooth, yet strong, a great mixer and very refreshing. The two gingers are his biggest fans. They're at practically every bar, club and restaurant in Minnesota to see his shows. And now they've taken to following Paul around the country. Texas, New York, Nebraska. You never know where you may find the two gingers. Just ask the bartender for them. Two gingers whiskey. What could happen? The Blue State Ball is back. Hi, it's Mike McEntee. AM 950's annual get-together of like-minded progressives is March 10th at the Blaisdell in Minneapolis. And I will be there and look forward to talking with you. But we've got much bigger stars on the program. The voices you hear here every day, Tom Hartman, Norman Goldman, and of course, our own Matt McNeil. Plus, expect lots of big-name political guests and candidates. It's always a great time, and tickets are on sale now at am950radio.com. Come join us and celebrate the resistance and the excitement building towards the 2018 elections. General admission is just $35 and gets you in at 7 p.m. Or come early at 5.30 p.m. with a VIP ticket for $100. Drop by and say hi to me, Matt, Norman, and Tom. The Blue State Ball is March 10th. Get tickets at am950radio.com and be part of the progressive voice of Minnesota. Why must the world be so cold? They've gone against what was told. Thinking rape is cool? Think about it. They think it's not wrong. Violence against women? The rape? The abuse? The emotional? Physical? They all hold the hate. Think about it. Is it right or wrong? What attracts you? I'm not saying no names, but you laugh. Talk about it like nothing is wrong? Think about it. They all hold the hate? Gotta stop the violence. Stop the hate? Think about it. Sponsored by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. With your AM950 weather, I'm Sam Turnberg. Tonight we'll see increasing clouds with a low around 14. Tomorrow there's a 20% chance of snow before noon and we'll have a high near 39. Monday there's more snow likely before 11 a.m. and we'll have a high near 23. The Bad Waitress in Northeast Minneapolis is a bit more grown up than its sister on Nicollet. This finer diner vibe has a full bar serving craft cocktails and a brand new inventive dinner menu. The Bad Waitress buys organic and local and you can visit them at 700 Central Avenue in Northeast Minneapolis or online at thebadwaitress.com. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. More with Diamond Dave Whitaker on the phone from San Francisco. What about Lawrence Ferlinghetti? Did you get to be buddies with him? Well, it depends on his buddies. He's the first guy I met when I, when I made it to San Francisco back then in 57. And I knew where to go, North Beach. And I got, I'm walking up Grand Avenue, uh, Columbus to Grand. And there it was, right, it was just up a block. Lights bookstore. Wow. Five years old. Wow. And uh, and so I went, wow, I'm here. Because this guy, Richard, talked about Sea Lights in the central spot. But, and then, so I'm standing in front of it. I remember like it was yesterday. And uh, uh, and here's this guy. He's in Middle East, but I guess he's 30. And he's putting copies of Howl in the window. Wow. And the Sea Lights was in a smaller place. which is that triangle then. And I'm standing there. He's put the window, and I go in, and I say, uh, well, I just got here. What did I do? So, he goes, and he said, well, I'm Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and we just got acquitted in a high trial, a hall trial. Hmm. Putting him back in the window. Wow. Then, what a day. The very day I got here. Wow. I got there. <laughs> that's, a pretty, that's pretty cool. That, that boded well for, uh, for the future. You were kind of blessed by the right hand of fate. Well, it sounds too good to be true, but that's true. Wow, that's so fantastic, it Dave. Too good to be true, but it was. I'm standing there now in my mind's eye as he's putting copies of How, what, volume one, uh, number one of the Pocket Poet series in the window. Wow. How many of the places that you could hang out in the bars, restaurants are still there at North Beach, David? Well, the two is still there. Okay. And that was where we'd go to see the college girls and uh, faculty members and so on. It was a little more close. 
But the place, which is where we all hung out, is called the place. After having an interview, evening, it would be empty, but then it would fill up and finally packed up. And you have to walk through a line of cops to get there. The place, and then the bagel shop. There's a daytime coffee shop a block or so down the street. The coexistence bagel shop. Hmm. Did you, was there a place called the Five Spot out there? A club? I think the Five Spot was a jazz place. Yeah. Did you go there at all, David? No, that was a little more cool. I was, kind of, I was a bike messenger. Uh, my line is beatnik, bike messenger by day. Beatnik by day and night. It was 1957. Wow. And I was in seventh heaven, a nonlinear doubt on the check award. So I remember I was only 18 or 19 years old then. Hmm. And they, they, they did cardio and stuff. I didn't think about it. I knew uh, there was a, you know, there was an after hours place. We're after the five spot and have a place that the, the, they'd all show up to jam. This is a generation of Mingus and Monk and all that. Wow. And it was called, uh, Jimbo's, Bob City. There was an after hours place. Didn't matter how old you were. In the Fillmore. Jimbo's. Wow. Did you get to, get to hear some of those jams, meet those great jazz musicians? Some of them. I lived right across the street for a while at the uh, at the Swiss American Hotel. And right across the street was a jazz workshop. Was, uh, and who lived in the same place, if I could tell all the window, was, uh, was uh, the hipster of the time, Lenny Bruce. Wow. Did you get to, did you get to, did you ever get to hang out with uh, with Lenny? Well, we all kind of hung out. We did hang out. We, everybody talked together. There wasn't the class system of celebrities in yet, you know? Right, right. Interesting. That's a good way of looking at it. What's well, the way I do look at it? What, uh, so what were you paying for rent back in 1957 in San Francisco? Uh, $10 a week. <laughs> and the places where these, uh, there's a good, uh, there were like uh, $10 a week hotels. Wow. Uh, and it was like the Dante, now called the Europa. The, uh, Swiss American, like the, it's right in, uh, the Swiss American, the Golden Eagle. Those were all ten dollars a week, and uh, they're like uh, strippers and poets, and uh, and people had their own room, but the doors were always open, and communities were emerging. Boy, when I think about you being a bike messenger, and then I think about those hills in San Francisco, that was not an easy gig. You learned how to avoid the hills. Wow. But occasionally, you had, it's occasionally I'm sure you had to hit, go up or down some of those Lombard Street well, or any of those. And I think uh, I worked for RCA, Chip to Shore. And I think if you worked for, and that was a much more loose, that was like the beginning of the rebel bike messengers. They went to hmm. the hippies and punk rockers. But then there was the other sort, like uh, Western Union and so on, where by and large uh, people, little small Filipinos wearing a, uh, wearing a, uh, uh, Oh, ties and so on. Let it really be, you know, <laughs> we could take our time. Right, right, right. We did. So when did you move back to Minneapolis then, David, after your uh, sojourn to San Francisco? Okay, after Minneapolis, I went, I had got a chance to go to uh, Europe. A guy, a friend of mine, inherited a bunch of money and said, I'll take you. Well, I guess he wanted somebody to, that was, I'll take you to Europe. But in those days, was, there weren't really that many uh, you didn't go by airplane, you took by ship. It took a week or more. And you just hang out in a ship and go from, um, from the East Coast to Europe. And, but then I lived for over a year, less than two, on a kibbutz in Israel. I took 21. Wow. On a kibbutz. Kibbutz Ben Hashita. Well, in Hebrew, and I always, now I have to hasten and just say, because they look at me, look at Jewish people, look at me like all crinkled up like I, was a sinner of some sort. This long before the Six Day War, right? This was a different, uh, different situation, right? Not the weather. The West Bank had been invaded, so I sometimes even avoid mention it because people have this whole thing in their minds. And somehow, if you ever went, and it was in nineteen sixty, I turned twenty-one. It was before all of that, right? And somehow, I, I should uh, castigate myself. Either. I just I lived on kibbutz, and the kibbutz was real. Though a couple of them. And they were still real. They, I, don't, I heard now it's not the same. What is it? What was a day like? A day like at the at kibbutz? What did you do? Well, I'd get up, uh, go out and work in the cool of the morning, and uh, so they'd bring food out. I'd be working in the olives, they eat and the olives. Or you could come in, go to the Hadaroko, which is the dining hall in Hebrew, and everybody eat together. 
and then the various people the teams they have something in there who shot Abadal the work leader and he decided who works with where because there would be different things you have to do whether it be in the uh, in, in, the, in the citrus uh, in the olives that's 18 Tepu Hadama that's uh, I'm thinking about it now that's like pomegranates it's what you did or or if they're and these are fairly new too or they work in the fields picking up rocks yeah, the truck and picking up rocks and throwing the truck where they're getting the fields ready to be sown. Was it a long day of it's work? Long day what? of work? Was it a long day of work? Long day, no. I mean, uh, right now it doesn't feel right because we took break. It, it was a different kind. Of, it wasn't. It wasn't like working in a working for the, for the man. It was a different atmosphere. Right. We were all, all together. It was a key bunch. And how long? It was not down, but I've been before the stories you took of people have been there. In the early days, then they would work day and night. Then they had to do that. But of course, having done that earlier, they they uh, they got used to got to think that uh, we're not uh, that we have to. Uh, not only are we there to be a success as a family keep butch, but also uh, make a life life into a good thing. Hmm. So when did you come back from Israel to Minneapolis? Sixty one. Oh. And. Did you, how long after you gave uh, Bound for Glory to Bob Dylan, how, how much longer did he stay in Minneapolis before he took off for uh, New York City? Well, we hung up. It wasn't that long because he read the book and then he, he read it and then he said, let's call Woody. And then I knew if you read his uh, Dylan's book Chronicles, he tells about it. And he said, let's call Woody. And he says that I knew where he could be found. And his book is just somewhere on the East Coast. But I knew exactly where he could be found in Greystone Mental Hospital. Right. Where he was dying of Huntington's cholera. And so he tried to call. Remember later night? Because remember, I, uh, we were drinking, we were drinking beer then, we spoke, and we were, uh, we tried to call, we got as far as the, uh, ward. And the doctor, orderly, whoever said, he can't come to the phone. He's, uh, he's paralyzed. He's, uh, he's dying. Uh, and that was when Dylan turned to me and said, and said, I'm going to go see him. And wow. so we took it. Said, it wasn't that long. Mm-hmm. And so Martin, in fact, it was Martin had the car. He had a convertible. He got from somewhere else. And so we hopped in the car and, we, and uh, took him out to the highway to uh, Madison, Minneapolis, Madison, uh, Chicago, where he played at the Gate of Horn, at these book clubs. And, uh, and then, uh, then a few weeks later, I don't forget. I get this card. He said, the famous picture of Woody Guthrie with a cigarette hanging from his mouth at an impossible angle. And his uh, guitar, and on this guitar, it says, this machine kills fascists. Hmm. And I turn it over and it says, Dear Dave, I saw Woody. He likes my stuff. Signed, Bob. Wow. This card kills fascists. Now, some of the biographies of Dylan, they go, oh, I saw, I saw Woody. He's a hip and a brother. The, the things that they say, and some of them, he didn't say at all. Dylan didn't say. He said what you, the most you'd expect him to say. He said, I, I saw Woody. He likes my stuff. Doesn't that sound like, more like Bob and blah, 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 blah. He said, get the coolest dog. It's disgusting. What, you don't still have the postcard, do you? No, I lost it long. I'm not like keeping stuff. Yeah. But that would be a, I don't know where it is or what it is, but it, but believe me, it happened. I know you don't think I, and anyway, uh, but then I've seen potential people later. And they claimed that by that time, Woody was no longer capable of doing anything. He was about gone. Mm-hmm. And Dylan may, may have come and played, sat by his, I know that happened, sat by his bed and played for him. But whether he understood what was going on or not, is, uh, uh, I don't know. Right. And I know he got picked up by his family. The father was a, uh, uh, the father was a, uh, uh, a labor guy worked for Long Sherman, East Coast Long Sherman. The Gleasons, I believe, the Gleason family. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, the son, uh, they lived in East Orange, New Jersey. Right. And they they, decided, they met Dylan there, and they took him home. Hmm. And the rest is history. Remember in one of the songs, he says, so long, so long, New York, hello, East Orange, or something like that. Right, 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 right. It's a great tune. Did you uh, did you get out to uh, New York and visit Bob or anybody else you knew out there at that time? L- Later, I would go. I'd go back and forth from time to time. In fact, I went up there. I stayed with Bob 
not too long later ago, but I remember I, I was married to Gretel. Right. And uh, we went out there. Uh, and we stayed there with, uh, I remember that he was living on Positively 4th Street then. Okay, you were, you were, excuse me, Dave, let me ask you, you were married to Gretel, did you say? Yes. Okay. And, uh, okay, so tell us, you were hanging out with Bob in the village, I imagine? Well, I live on 4th Street. Okay. On the other side of Broadway. Over a place, I remember my mind's eye, there's a, over a place called the door shop, where they sold doors so people could make coffee tables out of it. That was the, uh, that was a uh, fashionable event. You, you're positively sure it was 4th Street? It was 4th Street. <laughs> no, that's, that was a bad oh, pun. It was, it was, well, yeah, I know people have confused that. I think he's talking about 4th Street and Town. I don't know, but I know he lived on 4th Street. Right. Well, there's a 4th and Street in Hibbing, too, that you passed by between Chisholm and Hibbing, and I always thought that could have been the one, too. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Diamond Dave Whitaker on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer, reminding you this show is brought to you in part by the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation. The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities gay scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Crooner's Lounge and Supper Club invites you to check out their beautiful facilities for your next special occasion. Book your wedding reception, retirement party, business dinner, or other special event with confidence, knowing their expert staff and award-winning chef will make it a big hit with your guests. Call today to get a quote, 763-571-9020. STEM offers exquisite and exciting wines from around the world, served in a beautiful space showcasing a culmination of old world and new. While wine is their focus, STEM also has artisan beer, seasonal cocktails, and delicious rotating small plates. STEM is located at 24 University Avenue in Northeast Minneapolis. Learn more at stemminneapolis.com. Crazy about pets? We are too. The Pet Connection Show is a great venue for fun, informative, and creative conversations about pets. Join myself, Kathy Menard, and Dr. Nicole Parole, along with guests who are leaders in the dynamic and growing pet industry, as we discuss healthcare, relationships, behaviors, and even political issues as they relate to our pets. So come, sit, stay for the Pet Connection Show, Sundays 11 a.m. to noon on AM 950 Radio, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I first fell in love with Toyotas when I got my RAV4. It was perfect. And now that it's SUV month at Rudy Luther Toyota, you can fall in love yourself. Right now, Rudy Luther Toyota has 290 RAV4s in stock with 0% financing for 60 months or 0.9% financing for 72. The RAV4 is sharp with the safety features you need. It's perfect size for getting around town and hands down, it's the best off-road vehicle I've ever driven. See for yourself during SUV month at Rudy Luther Toyota, five miles west of downtown Minneapolis on 394. Hi friends, I've been talking to you about Minnesota's first green cemetery, Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's an entirely new way of looking at our last earthly step. Burials are designed to have as little impact on the environment as possible, for many of us a continuation of the commitment we made during our lifetimes. Let me suggest you go to the website mngreengraves.com. Explore what it is. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's a lovely place, a peaceful place. Minnesota's first green cemetery. What did you guys do when you were hanging with Bob, you and Gretel? What did you do with hanging with Bob in the village? Well, he took us around and introduced us to people. And he, was there, and he took us to the... Uh, now, this is where I'm still going to... You know the Living Theater? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, uh, that's Julian Beck and Judy Molina. Right. And he took us... Uh, I remember taking us there. Because it was there. Because it was a show. And I had known Wavy Gravy... When he was still Hugh Romney, he came. Uh, uh, he came. Uh, I, I, I saw a poster saying, 
down, Hugh Romney, stand-up comedian. When so I tracked him down and invited him to come over because I could see he was about to smoke marijuana with us. And uh, so uh, when we made New York, uh, uh, he was in a, was he related to Lady yet? I don't remember. I don't think so. He went on, but he was doing a stand-up comedy after hours at the Living Theater. Hmm. And the Living Theater was a they were having a show called The Brig. And I remember Dylan took us over because he knew that I knew I knew uh, Hugh soon to be wavy. And he knew us and seemed like a good thing to do. Now then, how did uh, Hugh Romney, later Wavy Gravy, hook up with Bonnie? The uh, the woman, you, the lady from Dickie Town. Yeah, I know. I believe I'm, uh, I'm not sure. I know they hooked up and we were like the first two to be driving a bar, going by, bar, uh, living in bus, in a bus, and then a caravan from buses, going from place to place. And ending up at the hog farm. Hmm. But how that happened, uh, I know there's Pacific High School. I know there's the hog farm collect, but I, 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 I mean, I, I, I was, I was, uh, I don't know the chronology there. How long were you in Minneapolis before you took off back to San Francisco? Oh, you're, so I went to New York where I met Beverly, the mother of my kids. My oldest son is Ubi, who's like 52 now. Wow. So I went to New York, back to Greenwich Village, and then we hitchhiked to San Francisco to help kick off the hippie movement. Of course, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but obviously that was uh, the, the spirit that brought me back. And what what year was that, David Whitaker? And the mother of my kids, that was 64, 65, 65, I guess. Wow. It was around then. So were you there... Uh were you there at at the beginning of the acid test with the Grateful Dead? Then the Warlocks? Well, it was before yeah, I was. I met the Grateful Dead just when I became a Warlock after, just before at Ken Kesey's place. Because hmm. I, I, uh, I it was about 65. That was almost just, a, just after that. I was there and met, and the acid test hadn't really begun yet, but it was there. That's when I first tripped. Wow. Kim Kesey's place on the way we were going to, and that's the, yeah, that's 65 or 66, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, you know your chronology pretty well, better than I do. It's hard to believe, but LSD was legal back then. There was a short period where it was legal. That must have been, those must have been powerful yeah, experiences, yeah. tripping. But before that, in fact, we were still in Minneapolis, where we first got involved with psychedelics, there in Tinkertown in Minneapolis. Dylan was there, in fact, too. Kind of thing with, and that was before LSD. That was uh, Morning Glory Seeds hmm. and Peyote Cactus. Wow. They sent it up to us from Jones Cacti Ranch. Wow! In the early '60s, you guys were you, were, you guys were on to peyote. We were. Bless you. We were definitely up for it. <laughs> we were ready for it. So, uh, so you're out in San Francisco. The doors to perception. Right. So what other cool people besides, uh, did you have any personal interaction with Ken Kesey? Well, I knew him. I went to his place, but he was, you know, uh, the conversation, but with the angels there, with Ed, it was like a party place in La Honda. Right. It was happening. It got, got kind of out of hand. Wow. In fact, his wife was Jane's mother, and they left. They said, this is too much. Right, right. And, uh. Because he wanted, in my, my mind, he uh, he was so enthralled by one of the cougars and I was, Mc, McMurphy, the character there, that now he doesn't want to just write a book. He wanted to be that character. And so he was willing, and that's what he, who he became. Hmm. He was more than just a writer of books for that, you know? Wow. That's, that's, an, interesting, that's an interesting take on it. his own character in his own novel. Really, I think like that is... And then he moved up with his uh, his brother in Oregon. His brother what, grew apples, was it? A dairy farm, I believe. Anyway. Chuck, yeah. And then he, yeah, dairy farm. Then he drank himself to that, Kizzy did. That's how. And I met, I met Kizzy a few times since. The last one, I think it was the 30th anniversary, Summer of Love. He brought the bus. Hmm. Riding on the bus, he drove in. And, he, and because I was involved, so I jumped on. And we were beside him on the bus. And this was I forgot my mother. And he drove right to the, and right through the crowd, right up to the stage. Thirtieth anniversary, summer love. 
Wow. Maybe it was trying. Well, when I was. Now, when did you get involved with the uh, Rainbow Gathering? And tell people, tell people first, uh, David. Tell people what the the, ra- the whole Rainbow Gathering thing is about. The, I am a member of the extended family called the Rainbow Family. I went to my first Rainbow Gathering in 1980. I've been, I think I've missed one one since. And so that's important to understand what the Rainbow Gathering, one of the reasons why I'm still surviving at this advanced age is I'm part of that extended family, the Rainbow family. And I'll talk about that. And what is, I was in, uh, I go every year. This year we were in the, uh, in Eastern Oregon, in the National Forest. Next year we're going to be in, uh, in Georgia and the Appalachians in what's called the Keturup, the Keturup, uh, bioregion. Rainbow Gathering, next year, July. David Whitaker, you're turning 80 years old. Give us some advice about how to uh, stay young, healthy, and positive in these trying times. Uh, well, these are the words that came to me when I was seven, just when I was turning 79. And it came to me in the Spirit. One is let the Spirit speak to you. And here's what the Spirit said to me. It's a good place to take this break. And here's what she, here's what she said. Learn to love. Love to learn. This never ends. Learn to love. Love to learn. This never ends. And so here I am, soon to be 80, and you ask me some words, that's the words I give to you. So it's, uh, come through me. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Wall. A great conversation with 80-year-old Diamond Dave Whitaker. This show is produced by Paul Metzler, engineered by Paul Sowie, and brought to you in part by the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation. We'd like to remind you, you can also watch my TV show, Wall of Power TV, every Saturday night at 8 p.m. We play it at 11.30 p.m. If you have Comcast, you can get it on Channel 6. If not, you can stream it at mcn6.org. I play at the Public Kitchen in Barn St. Paul every Wednesday night at 8.30 Shaw's Bar in Northeast Minneapolis, Sistineth and University on Thursday nights at 5. Follow me at paulmetza.com. And like my dad, Elder Metza, used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. Oh